We're chapter 14 in our study of the Gospel of Mark. Um, I think I'm going to review again. We're going to pick up at verse 53. We did some of that last week, but we didn't quite finish it. Just a remind you of a couple of things. Um, Mark's section here in chapter 14 and it, uh, 15 is his account of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And we're now beginning in verse 53, uh, his trials. Neither of the, none of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, record all six trials of Jesus. But when you put all of them together, Jesus had six trials. The first trial was before Annas, the previous high priest who had been deposed by Rome in AD 18, I believe it was. And then his uh, son-in-law, Caiaphas, which is the one that's recorded here. And then he will be sent to Pilate for his first civil trial. And Pilate will hear that he is from Galilee and will send him to Herod Antipas and will have a second trial, a second civil trial. And then he will be sent back to Pilate for his third and final civil trial. And then he will go back to the Sanhedrin for his final trial, it's his final religious trial, where they will then make that decision to take him to Pilate. And we'll get to that in just a minute. If you didn't get all that, it's all right. It, it isn't that important unless you really, really, really are into this. But this, this interesting reality of all these trials, uh, both the Jewish law and Roman law had due process procedures. Matter of fact, Rome, Roman emperor really invented, I shouldn't say invented, gave us and developed for us what due process rule of law looks like. And then it's just been refined in the 2,000 years since then. In that sense, we owe a lot to Rome. But the, the pre due process procedures of the Roman Empire were not followed <laughs> in Jesus' trial. Uh, all of his trial, in terms of their due process regulations, Jewish law, Roman law, were illegal. And obviously that is because these guys wanted Jesus to get out of the picture. And they're going to do anything they can to get him out. So this trial that is in Mark chapter 14, verse 53, and they led Jesus to high priest. This would be Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas. Caiaphas was high priest from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36. He's actually one of the longest-serving high priests in this period of time. He, he really was a master at reading the culture, reading the political culture, reading the religious culture, and adapting to it. He was a master. That's why he lasted so long. Uh, can I tell you a story? You'll be right. Uh, a few years ago, uh, no, it's more like approaching 20 years ago, I guess, but they were doing an archaeological dig in Jerusalem, and they found a tomb, and they found a number of ossuaries. Now, an ossuary is a box about this long and about this wide. It was a practice in the Jewish uh, burial tradition. Is the body would be buried. A year later, the family would go in, take the body, clean all the bones, and then put them in this ossuary. And so the, the bones then would be, they would be the family. And there could be three, four, five generations in that ossuary. This ossuary had bones in it and so on, but it had on its outside Ben Caiaphas. And they did a lot of studies and have now concluded that is the ossuary of Caiaphas, the one we're reading about right here. It's a remark, and it's in the Israeli Museum in Jerusalem. 
and I've seen it several times. It's really remarkable. That, that was an incredible find, validating again all the scriptures saying about this, this guy, Caiaphas. So he's a very powerful man at this time, and he has strong ties to Rome and strong ties to the Jewish leadership. He knew how to play the political and religious game well. So when Jesus is appearing before him in terms of these civil and religious trials, this, this part of his religious trials, he's before the most powerful man in, in, in Israel, religiously speaking, at that time. And Peter followed him at a distance and right into the courtyard of the high priest. Again, this is Caiaphas, his courtyard. And I think I might have met Fred mentioned this to me, so I must have talked about it last week. One of the interesting questions is how could Peter have gotten in there? Because to get into the courtyard of the high priest, you had to know somebody. And so what D.A. Carson and a number of other expositors have done is they made it to connections that John, who this is John, the writer of the gospel, John, the son of Zebedee, John's family was a very wealthy family, and they had a lot of connections with the high priest. So that's probably how Peter got into the courtyard. And so he's in that courtyard, and he was sitting with the guards. Now, these would be the temple police that had arrested Jesus. We talked about that last week. These aren't, this is not the Roman Empire. These are the temple guards warming himself at the fire. Now, the chief priests and the whole council, the whole council is the Sanhedrin, were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found not. I think I told you that Sanhedrin consisted of 71 members, but rarely, because just of all the different uh, people, rarely did all 71 meet. A quorum that was required was 23. So at least 23 people are in Caiaphas's house at this time. For many bore false, I mean, verse 56, for many bore, bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Now there, that's, that's a statement about due process procedure. This isn't enough to convict Jesus of anything. You have the witnesses disagreeing. And I mean, you know, <laughs> if you have witnesses disagree, they're not going to be able to legitimately find him guilty of anything. And some stood up and bore false witness, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. Three days I'll build another, not made with hands. And even about this testimony, they did not agree. Now, verse 60, so all of the witnesses they had brought in before the Sanhedrin, that wasn't in any way verifiable. It wasn't in any way legitimate. They're contradicting each other. And even the trumped-up group of at least these 20 three members of the Sanhedrin, they can't convict him of that. So now Caiaphas takes, takes control. And we are now in verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked. Now, it's, it's really important you thought he asks him two questions. First, <clears throat> have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? So, Caiaphas is saying, you heard all these witnesses. Don't you have anything to say? I assume that he would have said, uh, he would have expected Caiaphas would have expected Jesus to say, well, didn't you hear their contradiction? I didn't say that. That's not what I meant. But what does the text say? He remained silent. And did not answer. Again, the high priest asked him, second question. Now, this is much more penetrating much more prominent in terms of the goal of the Sanhedrin, much more important. 
are you the Christ? Okay, Christ is Greek word for Messiah. Messiah. Are you the Messiah? Now, there's no ambiguity to that question. There's no lack of clarity to that question. This is the hinge question. How is he going to answer this? But he adds, I shouldn't say, but, and he adds, are you the Christ, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? The Son of the Blessed One, which is one of the messianic titles in various places throughout the Old Testament. And it is what the Father said at Jesus' baptism. And so Pilate, excuse me, Pilate, Caiaphas is, I guess you could probably say, I've had it with all this other stuff. We can't get witnesses to it. So I am going to ask him. Now, because he was silent on the first question, you would maybe expect Jesus to be silent in the second question. He's not. Verse 62. Jesus said, I am. I am the Messiah. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus Christ has just combined two major Old Testament Messianic texts, Daniel 7, 13, and Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus just combined those two. Because Daniel 7, 13 says, One, like the Son of Man, comes up to the ancient days, receives dominion, star in the kingdom. And this, this seated at the right hand of power, Psalm 110, verse 1. And Adonai, and Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand. And I mean, listen, Jesus was silent on the first question. The second question, as categorical as, as Caiaphas' question was, Jesus is just as categorical. I am the Messiah. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in clouds of glory. So, from the perspective of the Sanhedrin and from the perspective of Caiaphas, Jesus Christ has just committed blasphemy. Now, he hasn't, but from their perspective, that's how they're going to look at it. Because I told you this last week, the Jewish Sanhedrin can convict someone of blasphemy, which would result in death. But Rome took away their power of capital punishment in AD 6 when they made Judea a Roman province. So, even though they can say he's blaspheming, they can't kill him for that. But So just keep that in mind, because Rome will kill Jesus because they believe he committed sedition, which I'll get to that in just a minute. And the high priest, I'm in verse 63, the high priest tore his garments and said, coming, and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And that, that Greek word, condemn, ESV is what I, I read from. It's okay. I would prefer to translate it. And they all condemned him as guilty. I mean, deserving of death. But they are now passing, in effect, a judicial sentence upon Jesus. He's liable. And now remember, and I'm going to repeat this for about the third time. They may be able to convict him of blasphemy on their terms, but they can't kill him. They do not have the authority. And by the way, let's go down that bunny trail for just a second. Suppose they could kill Jesus. 
What would be their method of execution? Stoning. The Old Testament law said for blasphemy and a lot of other capital crimes, you would stone. So they would have stoned him to death. But Rome took that authority away from them in AD 6. So that may solve their concerns at one level, but they're not going to get what they want, which is to get rid of this guy. And so look at verse 65. It's really quite extraordinary, really. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, prophesy. He can't see. They they covered his head, and now they say, prophesy. If you're really the Messiah, you can see. You're omniscient. You know who's striking you. And the guards received him with blows, slaps of the hand. That's what that Greek word means. Not fist, but slaps of the hand. All right, now just look at this. They spit on him. They covered his face, struck him, saying, you know, he's got, a, he's got a, a thing over his head where he cannot see prophesy. They're mocking him. They're scorning him. Isn't it just this the beginning of what Jesus is going to suffer? But just to think of that, what Jesus is willing to bear, because Jesus had every authority, every power available to him to strike every one of those people down. But he doesn't. He endures this because it's going to lead to his crucifixion, which is the whole key part of the plan. Why did Caiaphas allow this? Oh, my. Well, first of all, that was not abnormal for that to occur if someone has been charged with blasphemy. It really isn't. And, and so he probably, Fred, this sounds hard, he probably would be delighted in seeing him. Now, Jesus has begun to experience, and it is just going to get worse, as you know, the scorning and the mocking and the physical abuse. But this is very, very minor compared to what he's going to experience in just a little bit. The mark now shifts to the courtyard. Inside Caiaphas' house is where this, quote, trial, close quote, just occurred. Hey, Jim. Now he's back in the courtyard, verse uh, verse 66. And as Pilate was below, excuse me, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. Um, Probably... From the way John chapter 18, verse 16 talks about this, this servant girl was the girl who was manning the gate into the inner courtyard. She isn't just a random servant girl, because in the inner courtyard, there would not be a, a young girl like this. She was probably the doorkeeper from the outer into the inner court. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor I understand what you mean. Denial number one. And he went out into the gateway. Now, what does that mean? Peter has just gone from the inner part of the court through that gate 
and he's now in the outer court. You follow me? He's getting farther and farther away from Caiaphas's house. So he's now in the outer court. So he's passed through that gate where that girl was more than likely the gatekeeper. And so he's outside there. <clears throat> and the rooster crowed, verse 69. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. So as Peter walks from the inner court through the gate to the outer court, this girl notices when she starts talking about it. This guy's one of those people that's associated with that guy, Jesus. Verse 79, then he denied it. Denial number two. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Now that, you're probably saying, maybe you're not, but you're probably saying, well, how would they know that? How would they reach the conclusion that, Jesus, that Peter's a Galilean because of his accent? The Galileans had an accent, just like, I mean, you know, that's not unusual in any area. I mean, I grew up back east, and it's really interesting, but people will say to me, oh, you're from, you're from back east, aren't you? Because of the way I pronounce certain words. The way it inflects them, you're from back east, aren't you? Now, and it was, you know, it's like how we pronounce certain words. And, and how we, we, it's like, but how back east, learn how to pronounce certain words. I lived in the South for a while. And you know, when we live in the South, you can really hear that, that just that different, different way in which people talk. The accent, what they emphasize. I mean, in the South, they say insurance, not insurance. Well, anyway. So whatever, that distinguished Peter. You're a Galilean. And in verse 71, and he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak. Denial number three. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. What did Jesus say? Peter, you would deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. That prophecy was just fulfilled. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, for the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. In Luke's account of this, Jesus' trial is over, and Jesus is walking up the steps outside, and he turns and looks at Peter. I find that powerful. I found it piercing. Can you imagine how Peter felt? My Lord just looked eyeball to eyeball. He knows what I did. And that's why Mark is correct. In, in essentially, he broke down and wept. And that Greek word for wept is not just a few tears. He is in agonizing weeping. Peter has denied his Lord three times, even though he vowed I would never. And the third vow, the third denial was with a curse. And then if you take Mark's, excuse me, you take Luke's account, and at it, Jesus looked him eyeball in the eyeball, eyeball to eyeball after he after he denied him. That's why Peter, Peter is going to have an enormous amount of guilt for what he did. And that is one of the reasons Mark doesn't record this. John records it. When Jesus meets him up in Galilee after the resurrection, he and Peter take a walk along the beach. 
And you know what happens? He says to Peter, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Peter's restored. So, I mean, that's a very powerful aspect of Peter's life. I mean, this, this guilt would have been crushing for him. Because he vowed he'd never deny Jesus, and he just did. And Jesus looked him in the eye. So just the guilt and the burden that he would have felt, only the Lord would be able to release him for that. Would this, been, would this have been a repentant cry, I think? I don't think so, necessarily. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I'm not sure. I shouldn't have been so quick. I don't know that. The text isn't giving us any indication of that necessarily. I, I think it's a sorrowful, burdensome, uh, weeping and breaking down. In the sense of repentance, he can't undo what he did. So the Lord is going to have to help him. And that's what John 21 is all about. The Lord is going to have to help him experience his forgiveness. His, I mean, Jesus' forgiveness. And uh, so, I mean, the spirit of repentance, I think, will be th- would be there. But I'm not sure this, this is necessarily that kind of repentance. All right, let's shift into chapter 15 then. Hey, Jim, can I ask as soon a question? As, as it was morning. Now, I, we talked about this last time. You know, we've crossed from Thursday night into early Friday morning. And these, are, these, these trials are occurring around 3 a.m., 4 a.m. in the morning because he had been in Gethsemane. You remember all that we talked about. So now, as soon as it was morning, now what does that mean? The sun has come up. The chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, again, that's the whole Sanhedrin. So the whole group is meeting here. Probably, but this is getting closer to that 71 number, but we just don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us that. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Now, uh, I think you know this, but just let me remind you of this. Pilate is the Roman prefect. Later, in the title of Roman procurator. That's the language the empire used. We would simply say he's governor. He's the Roman governor of the province of Judea. In AD 6, Rome had, had deposed um, Herod's son, Herod the Great's son, who was a terrible ruler, and uh, kicked him out and made Judea a Roman province, administered by the empire. <clears throat> And that means Caesarea, which is along the coast, is where Roman soldiers were stationed. So then you're asking, well, why is Pilate in Jerusalem? Because it's Passover. And that is when there's instability. And so he has a significant number of soldiers with him, that is, Pilate does. And so if they are going to get, they, meaning the Sanhedrin, if they're going to get Jesus convicted of a Roman crime and executed, Pilate's the guy who's going to do it. Now, a couple of things about Pilate. He was named by the empire to be Roman governor of Judea in AD 26. He will serve until AD 36, which isn't a real long time. Second thing about Pilate, he hated what he was doing. He did not want this assignment. He is a virulent anti-Semite. He hates the Jews. And uh, to the degree this matters, but in, in the book I wrote on Covenant People, I have a long section on Pilate's anti-Semitic actions. Thirdly, 
he was in a politically precarious situation. His very close friend, a man by the name of Sejanus, S-E-J-A-N-U-S, who was a very powerful man back in Rome, extremely powerful. He was very close to Caesar Tiberius, who was the Caesar uh, at this time. He had participated in a plot to assassinate Tiberius. So Sejanus was executed. So not only is everything else I said to you about Pilate true, in addition, Tiberius knows that Pilate was a close friend of Sejanus, who had just been executed as a part of a plan to, a plot to assassinate him. Now, everything I just said makes sense? So here's Pilate, he's in a very precarious situation. And you're going to find he's reluctant to execute expedient for thing for him to do is get rid of Jesus, to please the Jews. So all that is really important. If you don't understand all of that, and that little bit of background, it, it, you don't understand everything there is about Pilate. He can't find the evidence to convict Jesus of sedition. But yet, if he doesn't convict Jesus of sedition and killing, the Jewish leadership is going to be an uproar, and the one thing Rome doesn't want is Judea being in an uproar. So he's had old proverbial between a rock and a hard place. That's Pilate. Are you with me? That just gives you a little bit of additional detail. All right. And Pilate asked him. So I believe there is some discussion about that. I believe that they're in the Antonio Fortress, which is on the northwest corner of Temple Mount. And so this is where this is where Pilate held court. So he's in the Praetorium. He's in the Antonio Fortress. And he asks him a question. He is probably asking him a question. Are you king of the Jews? Why would Pilate ask him that question? Is he asking that question with the same content and understanding that Caiaphas asked him that question? Why is he asking him that question? Yeah. Okay. He says he's king of the Jews, then, then he's going against Caesar. Yes. If you are king of the Jews, you are a threat to Caesar. Because Caesar's king. Because if you're claiming to be king of the Jews, then you are claiming something that the empire is not going to tolerate. Are you king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. So he doesn't deny it. He's not silent. He says, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. And so you have all of the Jewish hierarchy in the Sanhedrin presenting all this stuff to Pilate about his blasphemy. And Pilate says, I don't care about that. That is irrelevant to me. Rome doesn't care about that. And he said, are you king of the Jews? Well, you've said that. You said so. Which isn't exactly okay. And here he's bound. He doesn't have any following. He doesn't have an army outside of Jerusalem supporting him. It's just Jesus. And so Pilate is saying, don't you want to answer what these people are saying? And so it's all this. Pilate doesn't know what to do. So he comes up with an idea. 
I know what I'll do. Verse 6. Now at the feast, this would be the feast of Passover and unleavened bread. At the feast, he, is Pilate, he used to release from them one prisoner for whom they had asked. That's what I'll do. He's been as Roman governor since AD 26. It's now AD 33. So every one of those years, during the Passover feast, Pilate released somebody that the Jews want to be released. Oh, that's good. Good public relations. It earns him favor. I know what to do. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Now look at that description of Barabbas. He had committed murder. He's a murderer. And he had committed that murder during an insurrection. So Barabbas is guilty of sedition. Barabbas was a threat to the empire. You follow that? He's a murderer who participated in an insurrection, and that's when he committed murder. There were two other people arrested with him. And they were all going to be executed at the same time, on the same day. Which means, how many crosses were there? Three crosses. So what Pilate is saying, I will release one of these guys to you. How about Barabbas? Well-known insurrectionist. The Greek word for him is lastes. That is, should not be translated robber. That should be translated insurrectionist. And so you have this remarkable situation where Pilate, trying to get out of the very difficult bind he's in, I can't execute this guy. He's guilty of sedition. So I'll say, let's release him, okay? And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? I.e. Jesus. For he perceived, in verse 10, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Number one, Pilate's inference was correct. <laughs> that is exactly what these leaders were doing. They were envious of Jesus. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him released for them, Barabbas. And Pilate again said, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? They shouted all the more, Crucify him. Now listen, here is Pilate. His situation is even more heightened. Because as he's trying to find a way out, he doesn't execute Jesus, the crowds are getting more stirred up, more louder, and crying out. So it's on the verge of a mini-riot, a mini-chaotic situation. If there's anything you don't want in Jerusalem during the Passover slash Unleavened Bread Feast is a riot in Jerusalem. So what does Pilate do? The politically expedient thing to do is execute Jesus. 
It's not justice. It's not based on due process procedures. It's based on one thing. I fear for my position. So he will say, Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. A judicial penalty by Rome for crucifixion meant that this was preceded by scourging of a long Roman whip, and at the end, multi strips to it, and at the end of each strip was a sharp piece of metal, a sharp piece of bone, and little tiny, what we call like ball bearings. They weren't ball bearings, but little, little tiny circle things. And so it just hits the flesh, and hits the back, bruising and tearing it each time. So scourging. So Pilate has made a decision, politically expedient decision, not a justice decision. I believe it is reasonable for you and me to conclude Jesus died on the cross that was destined for Barabbas. So what you have is Jesus, who is innocent, dying on a cross that was destined for a guy who committed insurrection and sedition. And Jesus is going to be charged with sedition, but he's innocent, and the guy who really did commit a just sedition is released. The irony of this plan being worked out in human history. And it demonstrates once again, this was hardly justice. From either the Roman perspective, I mean by that the Roman Empire, due process procedures perspective, and certainly not from the Jewish perspective. But that's irrelevant. Everybody has concluded, he's gotta go. And so Jesus dies on the cross that was destined for a real insurrection. What's the what's the elements though of, that they would claim he was guilty of sedition? He said, "I'm king." Pilate says, "Are you king of the Jews?" He said, "I am." That's all. And someone claimed to be king in any area, you were claiming to have authority similar to that of Caesar, and that's sedition. Nobody's equal to Caesar. That's what reach. Well, I mean, obviously, that's the yeah. I mean, it's thoroughly unjust. But the Old Testament prophecies, Isaiah 52, 13 through the end of Isaiah 53, said that's what will happen. So this is just the plan is that plan is hoping to get him off his back. Herod Antipas says, I'm not going to deal with this guy. I don't know anything about it. Go back to Pilate. So it wasn't much of a trial. But he's appealing to all these authorities, and everybody just they don't know what to do with it. The, the, whole, the whole point is that Jesus is being unjustly accused and will be unjustly executed. Isn't that true today that people who are confronted with the message of Christ, they don't know what to do with it. So a lot of people say, I don't, I don't believe it. I don't want anything to do with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they... We always, I, I often put it, just someone to consider the plans of Christ. I don't want to. Oh, I did already. I'm not going to believe that stuff. I remember my, my son's, I've told you about him before, my son's wife's father, Johnson's father-in-law. Uh, he's had a stroke. He's very, he can't speak. 
whole left side of his body. Uh, I talked to Peter many, many times about Christ, and he just refuses. And he always says, ah, there's too much blood in that belief. I say, oh, my goodness. Because, you know, well, how do you respond to that? Yeah, there is. <laughs> the shed blood of Jesus. And he, I gave him a copy of my book uh, a number of years ago, four or five years ago, Covenant Pete, and he said, well, I'll read it, but there's a lot about blood and stuff, isn't it? I mean, you know, <laughs> not really. Not that much, but it's it's just interesting. Uh, Peter was one of brilliant guy, but to consider the claims of Christ, I already did that, and I rejected it. That's what he says. And I mean, it's dying. We just Peggy just put in the mail this morning. We thought of Thanksgiving. They don't celebrate the Thanksgiving in the UK, but it's part of the holidays. It's sort of the beginning of Christmas holiday, whether like it is here. And so we sent a Thanksgiving and just to put a little little tiny track in there, not even mentioning it. Just praying, Lord, this is one of his last chances. I mean, he's very, very sick. And he's very, very debilitated from this. It's about six strokes. If he comes into the Lord, it'll be absolute miracle. It's all salvation. But it, it, it's just an amazing thing. All right, let's complete this account of Mark to the crucifixion. I'm in verse 16 now. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and the, the Greek word for that is praetorium, and they called together the whole battalion. All right, now this is really important here. Something has happened. I want to make sure you understand what's happened here. Jesus has had his final trial before Pilate and so on. Now it's a Roman affair. The temple police that had arrested Jesus were employed by the Sanhedrin. This isn't the temple police anymore. These are Roman soldiers. And it mentions, the, the ESV is translated at the end of verse 6, that term battalion. It's very, it's a very difficult, it's, what does that mean? Because that's kind of an American word. But if we understand that term correctly, this is a group of about 200 to 300 Roman soldiers, okay? And they're leading Jesus from the praetorium on, that's part of the, Hero, the uh, building in the northwest corner of Temple Mount. And they're leading him now to Golgotha, which is west of Temple Mount. And they clothed him in purple, twisting together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. Matthew 27, 29 adds, and they gave him a scepter, which was probably just a stick. Comment on that crown of thorns. They are palm spines. They're that long. They're palm spines, and they would press it down into Jesus' scalp. So, this isn't just, you know, you go out here and, you know, take a, a branch of something that the leaves on it, and you make a sermon on it. This isn't that. It's not that innocuous. This is a very painful crown as they press it down into the palm of Jesus, uh, scalp of Jesus, which means it would have drawn blood, which means Jesus' blood would be going down over his face and down over the back of his head and along the side of his head. Now, got to remember, he has just been scourged. So when they put on, when they put on a 
purple cloak and they put it on his back, his back is already raw and, and ripped open. So I just, I'm, I'm not trying to make this clear, but you and I have to understand when, they, when, when Isaiah 53 says he is unrecognizable as a human being. That's what it means. Prophetically written in 700 BC, this is now occurring. If you would have seen Jesus, you would not recognize him. You wouldn't hardly even recognize him as a human. And that's why, and I think some of you, you remember Mel Gibson's film years ago, The Passion of the Christ? What Gibson tried to do was be as realistic as he possibly could of what Jesus must have looked like. Because, you know, Cecil B. DeMille and all these other guys that have done movies of Jesus, it's it's somewhat sanitized. Gibson didn't, whether you like that or not. He was trying to depict what Jesus. So this is horrific. Verse 18, and they began to salute him, hail king of the Jews. Additional mocking, additional scorning. And they were striking his head with a reed, perhaps his scepter. Striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him and making fun. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Though they would be the execution squad. A Roman execution squad consists of four soldiers. So I see no reason to think any differently about that. So now Christ is being led from um, the, that building in the northwest corner of Trump Mountain to west, and he would be going through the city, through the city streets. And they compelled, in verse 21 now, and they would have been the execution squad, these four soldiers, compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, Cyrene is in North Africa, so this is a Jew from North Africa who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. This is really interesting because Mark, Mark tells us, this isn't just something, I know, I know what family he's from. Father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. The typical cross, which, you know, vertical and horizontal, weighed about 450 pounds. No human being could carry a 450-pound cross. So what they normally had them carry was just a cross beam because the vertical piece was already in the ground. And so that vertical piece, that would have weighed about 100 pounds. And with everything that I briefly described, that he's being scourged, he's being beaten, and he has those pine, uh, uh, palm spike press. I mean, it had been horrible. He it had been physically weak, physically impossible for him to carry that. So Simon of Cyrene carries it. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. In Latin, the word for skull is Calvary. So Golgotha is the Hebrew slash Aramaic name for it. Calvary is the Latin name or the Latin translation of skull. So Golgotha and Calvary are the same place, but the Aramaic Hebrew is Golgotha, the Latin is Calvary, the place of the skull. And they offered him the mixed uh, wine mixed with myrrh, 
but he did not take it. That's wine mixed with myrrh was something to help lessen the pain. It's, it's like a, well, there isn't anything that we and I can take, but it's similar to something that really reduces the pain. What would you call that medically? It's uh, analgesic. Yeah, an analgesic, that's it. So that's what, it, it, it's primitive, but that's, a, and Jesus refused. But it's really remarkable. He's going to endure all this pain without any medical help. And they crucified him. And they divided his garments. What in the world would Jesus have had? Well, there would be his inner garment, his outer garment, his belt, and his sandals. That's all Jesus would have had. Psalm 22, verse 18, is a prophecy about this. They divided his garments and decided what each would take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. The third hour is 9 a.m. in the morning. Jesus will hang on the cross from 9 a.m. in the morning until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Now, every, every Roman execution had across the top of the cross a plaque or a little writing thing that said, in effect, this is why this guy's dying. This is what he's guilty of. And so Pilate didn't instruct sedition. He just said king of the Jews. Everybody understood what that meant. And they, with him, they crucified two robbers. And again, that, that word robber is at least it's insurrectionist. And that's why I believe strongly that the cross Jesus died on was the cross that's destined for Barabbas. Because he's dying with these seditionists, these guys who committed ex uh, who murdered during the insurrection against, against Rome. One is right and one is left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and scribes mocked him. Others saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from your cross, and we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Mark does not give us an account of the discussion that's in Matthew and in Luke that Jesus had with one of the other lay states. Remember, Mark is interested in one docudrama pro, bang, bang, bang. He doesn't have the lengthy discussion of things that go on on the cross between Jesus and the other two. He doesn't do that. He's interested in focusing on one thing. He's dying. Verse 33. And the sixth hour, and when the sixth hour had come, the sixth hour would be noon. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon. Now, man, I'm going to be theological here. It's very, very important from my perspective theologically. Why darkness from noon until 3 p.m., April the 3rd, A.D. 33? That is when the Father judged the Son. That is when the Father put all the sin of the world on Jesus. That is when the wrath of God is poured out upon his Son. That is when Isaiah 53 is fulfilled, when God pours out his wrath 
Okay, what's the theological word for that? Propitiation. This is when the substitutionary atonement occurred. This is when redemption was achieved. This is when the ransom, the lutron, the ransom was paid. All of those doctrinal theological words, oh my goodness, almost 20 of all of those doctrinal theological words that we use to talk about Jesus and his, his, his dying for us, it all occurred in this three-hour period. Darkness is upon the earth. The darkness, that it, it would have been a piercing and penetrating darkness for three hours because the Father is judging the Son. Verse 9, uh, verse uh, 34, in the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Emma Sabachthani, which is Aramaic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? This is exactly how Psalm 22 begins. So Jesus is in effect quoting from, if you will, Psalm 22, the great Messianic Psalm. Now what does that mean? What does that mean? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Men, theologically, it's very, very difficult to explain this. It's very, very difficult to understand this. So I'm going to do the best I can in my finiteness and, and my temporal nature of things and all that is a part of what it means to be a human. Jesus is experiencing something as the God-man. If the darkness is the metaphor and symbol of the Father judging the Son, Jesus is experiencing separation from the Father. You see, theologically, how do you, how do you talk about that? And so in, 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 in the mystery, in the mystery that is a mystery, it doesn't mean, you know, an Agatha Christie book, but in the mystery where we just can't quite figure out all that is going on here, there is an incredible transaction occurring here. The father is putting the sin of the world on his son and judging his son pouring out his wrath on his son, and his son will then die, will experience separation. His soul will be separated from his body. He will experience that separation, which is the penalty for sin. So Jesus pays that penalty, and the wrath of the Father is satisfied. That's what propitiation means. And so Jesus said, is it, he is, and it's, I don't understand what that means. I honestly, I can't put it in word, in human language, but Jesus is experiencing that separation from the Father as the Father judges him. Why have you forsaken him? And some of the bystanders say, he's, he's, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour one, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. And that someone is more than likely a Roman soldier because normal civilian couldn't do that. The executions God did that. Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him. And he uttered, he, verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. In John's gospel, specifically, in John's gospel, chapter 19, verse 30, he tells us what his last cry was. Remember what it is? To tell us die. It is finished. 
It is finished. What's the it referred to? The it's a neuter pronoun. What's it referring to? Everything's, everything's satisfied. Zeg covenant is fulfilled. Propitiation has been achieved. Substitutionary death has occurred. Atonement has occurred. The lutron, the ransom has been paid. Redemption has been achieved. All of that, it's finished. The plan has been completed. The rescue plan God hatched in Genesis 3.15 is now completed. In the words of gospel, he gave up his spirit. Jesus voluntarily died. And so, I mean, these, these words that we're reading on these pages, are, I mean, they're just, it's almost impossible for us and our finite minds to truly, truly understand what happened in those three hours. And Jesus died. And look what Mark tells us. In, the, in verse 38 there, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Hebrews, book of Hebrews, helps us understand what that means. Now, there's 24-7 access to God. The temple system is done. The sacrificial system is fulfilled. The Holy of Holies, and all that that involves, that system, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, has been fulfilled, been completed, it's done. Now, the new covenant has been inaugurated. And so that transition from the new old covenant to the new covenant occurs in verse 38. The old covenant is over. The Mosaic covenant is done. Jesus fulfilled it all in dying on the cross and shedding his blood. And so the temple curtain, which Josephus, whether that's right or not, Josephus tells us that's four inches thick that curtain by the time of the first century. And so it's torn. I, I often wonder, and how did the Sanhedrin explain that? How did they explain that? The Bible doesn't tell us how they explained it. I want you to notice one more thing because I've got to quit. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Men, we don't understand all that that man, what is the content of his belief? What is he really saying? Because in the Greek language, he could be saying, this man really was a god. Which, for the Greco-Roman world, they believed in many, many, many gods. So that's all he could have meant. But Mark uses, and, and remember, Peter was Mark's source, amen. This man was the Son of God. So this centurion, presumably not part of the four-man execution squad, a centurion would not, the centurion is someone who's in charge of 100 men. He, he wouldn't be on execution squad. So he's a Roman soldier. He's observing this. He would have been part of that battalion that we read about a couple of uh, verses ago. So we don't know anything about this guy, but he has watched this, he's seen this, he heard, he, he must be the Son of God. Will we see him in heaven? Hopefully we will. 
All right, I've got to quit, man. We will pick up with verse 40. Um, and next week, humanly speaking, the odds are very high. We will finish the Book of Mark. Now, it's all up to you, because if we don't, it will not be my fault. It will be your fault. Just one, one last comment. Yeah, please. How the darkness and, and the, the wrath of God, how God was an emotional well, I think there is the the remorse that God would have felt as He saw what His image bearers whom He gave stewardship responsibility over the garden. That would have been heartbreaking for Him. This this is what I'm saying is really hard. The heartbreak of God the Father and what He did to God the Son, but then He accepts that sacrifice, accepts that penalty which has been paid. How do we know the Father accepted it? Well, what Jesus said is finished, but how, how do we know, tangibly, how do we know the Father accepted it? He raised him from the dead. The resurrection validates that the Father accepted. So that remorse and sorrow, because God is emotional, that emotions, remorse and sorrow is replaced by victory plan of redemption has been completed and he raises jesus from the dead man i've got to quit okay thank you father for the word of god as we've reviewed and studied something very familiar passages because we've studied this over and over again we read it easter good friday and all that but it just reminds us what it cost you or jesus as you died on the cross for our sins what it cost you father as you poured out your wrath on the son and we know that you accepted that sacrifice because you brought Jesus back from the dead. We will be eternally grateful for that. We will praise you eternally for that. And so, Lord, we thank you, just as we reviewed it again, what we owe to you. We owe everything to the Lord Jesus. And Heavenly Father, thank you that we now have a relationship with you as your children. May we represent you well, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, guys, I'll see you.